0: Thanks for joining us for today's message. Here at Temple Baptist, we're a church on a mission, connecting people to Jesus and to one another. Well, thank you so much, Worship Ben. Appreciate that so much. All right, I was just thinking, listening to that song, the first time I ever actually heard that song, and kind of picture Clint Eastwood coming in on a guitar, on a horse there. It's kind of a western. I I loved it. Very catchy. Thank you so much. And Terry, loved that on the guitar there. I didn't even know you had it in you. You've been holding back on us for sure. Uh, Kevin said earlier that um, we're excited about the hampers. And we are, I think, uh, 160 families already that we are going to be assisting. And uh, I think it's a great privilege. I met with the mayor this week and just sharing some of the things that uh, we're doing as a church to make a difference uh, in our community. Well, good morning, everyone. We're so glad to have you. This is my very first Sunday back, actually speaking, since arriving uh, back from Israel. 47 of us went and had a trip of a lifetime, I will say. It was quite the experience. And if you've never been there, I really would encourage you to save your money and hope, and, and pray that one day that you would be able to go. It really is Life-changing, it, uh, it makes the scriptures jump off the pages, it, it comes alive. It's like watching black and white television all of a sudden, seeing everything in color. A great experience, and you know, I pray that one day you'd be have the opportunity to go as well. Listen, have you ever felt the sting of rejection? Have you ever felt the sting of rejection? It can be devastating at times. In fact, it can turn your whole world upside down. It can cause you to lose sleep at night. It, it can affect your health when we get consumed by rejection. You know, every week, millions of people turn into reality television to see people reject it every week. You know, sometimes it, maybe it's American Idol or The Voice or or Master Chef or, or The Bachelor or the Bachelorette. Uh, and some of these rejections do not go down very pretty. I was just watching one this week on YouTube where an American Idol contestant had come to sing Amazing Grace. And he was so confident. He felt he was the best singer in the world and he talked about, you know, God and he came in and he started to sing, and I was like, oh, I'm, oh it was so bad. And finally the judges were just like um, you, you, you kind of sound like a cat, like a lawnmower. He said, what, what do you mean? What do you mean? He says, dude, I, you, you can't sing. He says, I can sing. Let me sing it one more time. And he sang Amazing Grace one more time. And as he was singing, I kept trying to stop him and stop it. And he would not stop. Finally, they had to call security, handcuffed him to take him out. He didn't take the rejection very well. When I attended Global Leadership Summit this past um, fall, there was a speaker there who was talking about. he was on a journey of a hundred days of rejection. He was looking to be rejected for 100 days in a row. And I remember thinking that guy's crazy. Why would anybody want to do that? Well, in the real world, uh, many of us have felt the st- a sting of rejection. You know, maybe it was a job that you were passed over. Uh, maybe you, you missed out on a promotion. Uh, maybe you received bad, a bad review on your job, or even worse, you, you were let go. And sometimes it's hard to swallow, especially, you know, if you've been at a company for a really long time. Uh, some of you have felt the rejection of a parent. I was talking to somebody from our church this week who just said, I was always told I was a mistake. And you kind of feel this thing of that you know, some of you maybe you know what it feels—the like rejection of maybe there was a favorite sibling, and you were always compared to the favorite sibling. Sibling, I often feel bad for my sisters who had that problem. And no, <laughs> just joke, joking, joking, really joking, just joking. <laughs> and some of you parents know the sting of being rejected by your child. You know, think of the story. In the Bible, it talks about the prodigal son. The prodigal son just wanted his inheritance. Really, what he was saying, Dad, I wish you were dead so I could have your money. Rejection. If you feel rejected or have ever felt the feeling of rejected, let me tell you, Jesus gets it. Maybe you've experienced rejection in a relationship. You know, maybe your boyfriend or girlfriend breaks up with you because you know you're not just not doing it for them anymore. Maybe the rejection of a spouse. We know that can be absolutely devastating, debilitating at times. It can actually rock your whole world to the core. I read a story one time of a soldier who was fighting in Desert Storm and uh, he had been deployed overseas and he received one of those dear John letters from his girlfriend back home in the US and she wrote, "Would you please Return my favorite photograph of myself. I need it for my engagement picture in the local newspaper. Well, the young man was absolutely devastated by the rejection. But all of his fellow soldiers came to his rescue. They went throughout the entire camp and collected all the pictures of all the other soldiers' girlfriends. And they filled up an entire shoebox and sent it to the girl along with a note saying, Please, find your picture. And return the rest because for the life of me, I can't remember who you are. (laughs) And that took it from rejection to revenge. (laughs) I hate to admit it, but there are some times I have found myself to be very shallow when it comes to rejection. You know... Uh, When someone says, you know, decides to to leave the church because, you know, one reason or another. And sometimes you kind of feel that bit of rejection. And and the thing is, if you don't deal with rejection, it will really hamper you from moving into the future. In fact, rejection can sometimes cause you to even question where God has called you. And and this morning, I want to look at a passage of Scripture where we're going to find out where Jesus is rejected. So if you have your Bibles, and I really hope you do, because that's the one thing that we do every single Sunday here. We open up God's Word, and we read from it, and we study from it. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn to Luke chapter 4? Luke chapter 4, uh, if you have some kind of electronic device, of course, you can look up Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. In fact, what I'm going to do is, ask if you'd stand as we read God's word this morning. Luke chapter 4. And we're going to pick up the story in verse 14. Luke 4:14. Four, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues and everyone praised him. then he went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is, is fulfilled in your hearing. All people spoke well of him and were amazed at his gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Do do here in your hometown what you have heard that you did in Capernaum. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up. They drove him out of town. They took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Father, our prayer this morning that as we look at this passage of Scripture, And we see the Son of God, the one who came to set us free, rejected by his own. I pray, God, that we would learn that even as your children, there will be days. Rejection will come our way. And So, Lord, we want to know how best that we can deal with this in a godly way. And so, Lord, for the next few moments, we pray that we'll send your presence. Would you make your word come alive to us? We pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. The event that we just read is about a year. After the baptism of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't really record much of that first year of ministry, but the Gospel of John gives us a little bit of insight into the very first year of Jesus' ministry. And and we're told that Jesus had returned to Galilee. Josephus, the Jewish historian, says at Jesus' time, there's about 240 villages in the area of Galilee. And a lot of the villages would have had maybe 10,000 people. Some suggest that somewhere between 2 and 3 million people are living in the Galilee area. And Jesus is traveling throughout this area, and his popularity is growing. His fame is spreading abroad. He's building quite the reputation as a teacher and as a miracle worker. There is no one doing the stuff that Jesus is doing in the Galilee area. And it says that he decides to head back to his hometown of Nazareth the town where he grew up as a boy and became a man. And Nazareth is about, at this time of Jesus' time, scholars will say probably around 20,000 people. It's a hub. It's a metropolitan city. Three major highways are going through the city, so it's a place of, of, of commerce, uh, lots of trading and business. In fact, we were just, our group last week, we were just in um, Nazareth, this town. And when you're on the hillside of Nazareth, you you get a spectacular view, actually, of the Valley of Megiddo, which is one day will be also the the Valley of Armageddon, where it all will end one day. And and from that point, you can see the Mount of Transfiguration. And on that point where they they took Jesus, you can see Mount Gilboa, which where Gideon defeated the Midianites. You can also see nearby the vineyard of Naboth. You remember that story, Ahab, the king Ahab wanted his vineyard so bad and he wouldn't sell it. And so his wife Jezebel said, well, just kill him and take it. And he does. And right there from that pinnacle, you can see where Deborah, the judge Deborah, defeated Sisera, the commander of the Canaanite army. Uh, You can see Mount Carmel where Elijah was against the 450 Baals, the prophets of Baal. And as a little boy, Jesus would have been very, very familiar uh, with this hill. Uh, in fact, I think we brought. Oh yeah, we did. Show some, brought some pictures here. So this is the view. This is where they had brought Jesus up. Actually, they were going to throw him off this cliff. I think the next picture kind of shows you. This is actually the town in Nazareth. We were up there. We were singing, worshiping, and w- the sun went down, and all of a sudden the lights started coming up all over. Nazareth it was a spectacular time and this is a hill that Jesus would have known really really well it's the precipice from which they're going to throw Jesus they think So so the scriptures tells us that Jesus went into the synagogue, which was his custom. If we were to kind of relate that maybe to today, it would be like going to church. It it was Jesus' custom to go to church. The synagogue was a place of of, uh, worship, the reading of scripture, prayer, teaching, much like how we have our churches today. And when Jesus walked into the synagogue, many people would have recognized him. I mean... This would have been the synagogue that he would have been taught and grown up in. Perhaps even when he walked through the door, there, there could have been relatives of his. Maybe, maybe it was an un- uncle, a, a cousin. Uh, maybe one of his brothers was there that day that he walked into the synagogue. The Bible says he stood up to read. In the synagogue of that day, it was the practice that people would read scriptures from one, the law, the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that one would read from the law, some would read from the prophets, and then there would be a reading as well from what they would call the writings, which would be like Psalms, Job's, uh, the historical books. And most of the time during this period, they would have about seven different men read the scriptures. And if you were a guest attending, well, then you were given the final reading of the day. And Jesus is back visiting, so he's the honored guest. He's given the final reading, and he's given the, uh, he's handed the scroll. Not a book, he's not flipping through pages, but he has the scroll of Isaiah. In fact, last week we just saw. Um, a manuscript, a scroll of Isaiah that was 2,700 years old. Um, of Isaiah. Now we know the time of the year uh, in this passage. It's getting close to the new year on the Jewish calendar. Rosh Hashanah day was right around the corner. And according to the Jewish calendar, it was the fourth Sabbath before the new year. We know that because Isaiah chapter 61 is still read at that particular time of the year, the first part of September. There's a schedule for the reading of God's word. It's still being done today. And so this Isaiah 61 would have been read just before the new year. Perhaps maybe that's why Jesus has come back to Nazareth to celebrate the new year. And as he unrolls the scroll, he begins to read from Isaiah chapter 61. We know it is Isaiah chapter 61. Of course, back then there were no chapters and verses. And he picks up by saying, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. One of the things that Luke does When he presents Jesus, he presents the human side of Jesus. John presents more the the divinity of Jesus, the divine side. But Luke really deals with the human side of Jesus. Luke tells us about the work of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' life. It talks about his prayer life. Now, if you ever remember reading or studying about the baptism of Jesus, it says that the Spirit of God came upon him that it was the Spirit of God that led him into the wilderness. He, he was empowered by the Spirit of God. He was filled with the Spirit of God. And he says here in this passage that the Spirit is, a God, uh, is upon me for the anointing of the preaching of the good news. He's anointed to preach. You know, sometimes that's hard to explain. What does it mean to be anointed to preach? I, sometimes it's hard, but you know when it's not there. But when it is, there's a flow to what's happening. The reality, there is no value in the ministry of God apart from the Spirit of God, unless he's involved. Remember that verse that says, not by power, not by might, but by the Spirit of God. Obviously, in a setting like this, we need the anointing of God. Teachers need the anointing of God. Hearers, listeners need the Spirit of God as well open your eyes because like the natural man we can't understand spiritual things unless the spirit of god opens our eyes and so jesus has, is saying he's come to preach the good news the gospel and and it says to who to the poor sent someone uh, john uh the baptist actually sent um one of his followers to to go ask jesus if, if he was the one? Or should they be looking for someone else? Because uh, John the Baptist, like many of the people in uh, in Israel that day, were looking for a certain type of Messiah. They were looking for someone who was gonna come and overthrow the uh, Roman authority. And so John wants to know, are you the one? And if you are the one, I, I think John may be getting a little tired of being in prison. If you are the one, then let's get the show on the road. Let's overthrow the Roman authority authoritatively we're told later that John bore witness of Jesus who he was because he says he must increase and I must decrease you know it's interesting when it says he came to proclaim and preach to the poor the bible also says it's hard oh it's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven you think well why is that so? Because sometimes we put so much trust in our riches that we, can, we think we're self-sufficient. We, we can do it all on our own. I remember when a few years ago I went with a team to the country of Haiti. I had never been to a country that poor in my life. It was so poor. I mean, they had nothing. And, and we're at this church and, and people are singing And they got a a smile on their face. They seemed to be filled with joy. And I said to the missionary, I don't get it. Why is there so much joy in these people? He says, because Donald, they know there's a better day coming. But you folks in North America, you're not too sure it's going to be a better day. And Jesus is is healing. Uh, Everywhere he goes, he's he's preaching to the poor. And so it's interesting When this gentleman had come from John the Baptist, and he asked the question, are you the one, uh, or should we be looking for someone else? Jesus doesn't answer him. Why wouldn't Jesus say, yeah, I'm the one? He doesn't. What he says is, go tell John what you are seeing, that Jesus has been healing and proclaiming the gospel, the good news to the poor. See, John would have known what Isaiah chapter 61 said about the coming Messiah. That he was to come to preach to the poor. And he came to to heal the brokenhearted. How do you heal the brokenhearted? I I just want to say, when we were in Israel, you know, uh, there was a lot of people had a broken heart. We had one couple who still still trying to work through the idea that their son, their 26-year-old son, their oldest son, had died by suicide. You know, Broken. We had another gentleman there, his, uh, his daughter. And actually, last year, it was in the news, last year in Nova Scotia was killed by his own son-in-law. And another guy who's just struggling after coming back from Afghanistan. You know, the, the, all the, the memories and, I mean, people had broken hearts there. And it says that Jesus came to, to, to heal the broken heart. How do you do that? I, I think one of the ways you just... You get bathed in the love of God. The fact that he accepts you where you are and who you are. Of course, he loves you way too much to leave you where you are. But he loves you enough to come, you can come just where you are. So he came to, to preach to the poor, to, to heal the broken heart, to, to set the captive free. The Bible tells us that Satan holds people captive. Sin keeps us in captivity, uh, captive to our flesh. In fact, after the resurrection of Jesus, remember it says he descended down to set the captives free. And that passage of scripture says he came to the recovery of sight to the blind. We know from the Bible that that the Bible says that Satan has blinded our eyes to sin. Paul says that the natural man is blinded to spiritual truth and, apart from Jesus Christ, will always remain blinded to his sin. He came to release the, the oppressed, to give freedom to the prisoner. Jesus was anointed to preach the gospel, to free people from their sin, to set people free from their addiction. I was talking to a brother here uh, at church just this week who said, you know, I really, my, my life was messed up with cocaine and then God delivered me miraculously. I said, you never, you never tried it again after that? No, I never did it again. God miraculously took that desire away from me. And I believe that Jesus came to set people free from their addictions. Free from the strongholds of their life. I mean, that's the gospel. The gospel is to set people free from their sin. That is it in a nutshell. It's not complicated what Jesus came to do. The gospel is the good news that sets people free from their sin. And many of you here have experienced that. But the truth is there will be some here that have never. You know, the truth that I speak but you've never personally experienced it. You've never got to the point where you've invited Christ in your life, where you've asked him to forgive your sins and, and give you a fresh new start. Jesus was anointed to preach the good news. And then he says, in the year of our Lord, it's favor. I think what Jesus is saying, like, this is the time right now. There's no need to wait. This year you can receive the God's blessing in your life. This is the year to receive God's favor. And when I read that, it kind of gives me the impression, well, maybe there's a day that I won't be able to receive God's favor. Maybe there is a day coming that I won't be able to receive God's blessing. You remember the story of Noah, and, and he was proclaiming and preaching uh, for people to repent of their sins, and they didn't, and all of a sudden it started to rain. And then what? It was too late. It was too late. Sometimes I think people make the mistake that I can come to God anytime on my own terms. You know, God right now is extending his hand to you who don't know Jesus Christ for the opportunity for salvation. But I think there may be a time that Jesus no longer extends his hand for salvation. See, you don't know what tomorrow holds. Maybe it's now or never. And it says, after he read that scripture, he kind of closed the scroll, passed it back to the attendant, and sat down. And sitting down, um, he was getting ready to teach. That's what would have happened in the synagogue. Rabbi would read the scriptures. He would sit down, And begin to teach. I find it very interesting, by the way, where Jesus chose to stop the reading in Isaiah 61. In our Bibles, it's Isaiah 61, verse 2. He stops right in the middle of the verse. Of course, there's no verses back in Jesus' day. But it's interesting where Jesus chose to stop reading about the prophecy. Because the very next line, after he says about the year of the Lord's favor, the very next line, it talks about the day of vengeance of God. He stops in the middle of reading about this prophecy. He doesn't finish reading it. He stops when he proclaims the year of the Lord. Because the very next part is going to be about future prophecy. It's going to be about God's wrath being poured out on this earth. See, Jesus' first coming is all about preaching the good news. This is the year of the Lord's favor on us. Now is the time to receive the good news. Now is the time for the gospel message. The next time Jesus comes, the next time that he appears, the next time he'll usher in The Great Tribulation. There is this first coming of Jesus, but there's also the second coming of Jesus. And the second coming will answer in the wrath of God. Revelation says people will cry out that the rocks would even fall on them to die. Who will be able to stand in that day? It is coming, it's in the future. But right now is the year of the Lord's favor. Right now is the day of acceptance. But, my friend, there is a day coming of God's vengeance. Sometimes I find it hard not to believe that Jesus' second coming is not around the corner. Sometimes I think... I th- you know, this world must be close to its end, not because of climate <laughs> problems either. But you look in our society today, sin is flaunted so prevalently. And I often wonder, God, how long? He obviously is a very long-suffering guy, full of patience, full of loving kindness, as the year of the Lord's favor continues to be extended to people. The first time Jesus came to bring salvation, but it will be different the second time. And the story tells us that every eye was fixed on him. I, I kind of picture that when he finished reading, he rolled up the scripture and sat down, I When I read, I think, you could have heard a pin drop. Because it says, every eye was fixed on him. He had their attention. And then, he speaks some very powerful words. He says, I am the fulfillment of the prophecy. What we just read today, he says, I have fulfilled it. It's a very bold prediction. It is fulfilled today. I am it. The Spirit of God is upon me. I have come to proclaim the good news, to set captives free. And when he said that, I cannot help but believe. Be like church here today, me making some outrageous claim, and all of a sudden you guys start whispering. I can't help but believe there was whispering. It's like, is that not, isn't that the carpenter's son? I know his mother. It's Mary. She lives four blocks down. Like, isn't this, isn't, doesn't he have, like, brothers and sisters? Like, isn't Joseph and, and Simon and James and Judas, aren't those his brothers? I'm sure his sisters live in this town. Like, where did he get this knowledge? Who's trained him? Who was the rabbi that taught him? Lots of whispering going around. See, rumors were spreading like wildfire who he was. Stories had reached his hometown of Nazareth. And they would like to see a few little miracles as well that were being performed in all the other villages. Sure, Jesus now has just declared who he was, but now they're going to want him to prove who he is. And in verse 23... He says, you'll say, physician, heal thyself. This reminds me of when Jesus was hanging on the cross. Remember when people were yelling out, hey, you saved others, but you can't save yourself. Remember even the thief on the cross, if you're the son of God, then save yourself and us. Prove it. Who you are. Here's the truth if Jesus had saved himself, he wouldn't have been able to save others. And if he was going to save others, he couldn't save himself. And what they say is, do a miracle for us. We've heard through the grapevine that you have been doing lots of things down in the village of the town of Capernaum. Do one right here. Do one right in front of our very own eyes. And then Jesus is going to say something that is going to, irritate them he's going to get underneath their skin with this next statement that he's about to say now we know in this world today there's lots of um, hatred toward Jews right I mean anti-semitism is, is global it's all around the world in fact our tour guy believe it or not I, I'm shocked by this but our tour guy who was a young uh, Jewish girl said you would be surprised how many churches that I lead tours with make slurs against Jewish people. Made me sick (sighs) to think that God's people would do that. Well, when you read the history of Israel, you'll soon discover that the Jewish people in Jesus' day were actually, I'd say they were racist. They were very much anti Gentile. Salvation was only for the Jews. Gentiles were the people who would stoke the flames of hell one day. That was their view of the Gentiles. They had a very strong nationalistic feeling and they were very anti-Gentile. So what Jesus does is very interesting because he's going to bring up a little bit of Jewish history. He's going to bring up a little bit of the Israel history and it's going to get on their nerves. Because he says, Jesus says, for three and a half years, he reminds him, remember the story, for three and a half years it did not rain in Israel. Elijah had gone to Ahab, told him there's a famine coming, there will be no rain. And guaranteed, there was lots of widows in Israel who were struggling and struggling to provide for their children, yet who does God send his prophet to? He sends it to a widow in Zarephath in Sidon, outside of Israel of all things. And Jesus reminds them of that. And then Jesus reminds them the story of Elisha. You know, leprosy was fairly common in this particular day. There's lots of people with leprosy. And yet God chose to send, or God chose to use Elisha to heal Naaman, a Syrian, not a Jewish man. Assyrian he uses. And God was working among the Gentiles. I mean in fact it was right in their own history books. It was right there for them to read. And you get this impression as you read this after you said that it's like they would close your, I don't want to hear that. Stop talking. Because it shook them to the very core. I think Jesus was giving them a heads up. That good news was coming for the Gentiles. Pentecost is not going to be too far along when everything changes. Now the gospel will be available to the non-Jew, to the Gentile. They were so furious. They were so angry. They were so mad that it says they literally grabbed the whole and they dragged him right out of the synagogue. And took him up on that hill that we t- had a picture of earlier. Up on the precipice. Because they were going to throw him off. It's like a mob of people. And then it says he walked right through the crowd and was gone. It's like he disappeared. I don't know. I, th- I think something miraculous obviously took place because he slipped right through their hands. Jesus could not find honor in his own hometown. None of his half-brothers and sisters believed him. Remember the story in Mark uh, 321, right? His family came down to Capernaum because they've heard stories. They thought he was crazy. They thought he was out of his mind. They're going to come down and they're going to rescue him. They thought he had lost his mind. Get him some help. His hometown didn't accept him. His own family didn't believe a thing he said until after the resurrection. You know what's the one word that describes this event? Rejection. The home crowd was full of amazement how he taught and what he did, but all of a sudden it turned into scoffing and they took great offense. What he was doing, they felt was scandalous, what you say here in the synagogue. And they refused to believe him. It says everybody, everybody in the synagogue was enraged. And they got up and they drove him out of town to throw him off the cliff. Rejection. It happens to everyone. If you've been rejected or feeling rejected, I want to tell you, and Jesus has felt it too one of the more debilitating things about rejection is that often it makes you feel like you are all alone. Especially if it's a relational rejection. But Jesus knows what that's like. The fact is you are not alone. And that wasn't Je- this is not Jesus' only experience of being rejected. You study his life, rejected time and time again by his hometown, by um, his own family, by, by friends. I mean, you think of Judas who betrayed him. That's rejectional, relational rejection. You think of Peter who denied him. That's, that's relational rejection. Um, and the crucifixion, that's the ultimate rejection. And the Son of Man comes to earth as a man to show how men can have genuinely peace with God the Father. And after three amazing years of ministry, they nail him to a cross. And while he hung on the cross praying, at about three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sounds like rejection. Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 5. It's a beautifully haunting verse about this. Let me read it to you. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like one who people turned away from. He was despised. We did not value him. Yet he himself bore our sickness. And he carried our pain, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. And the punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. I want to say one last thing. Maybe it's the most important thing. Jesus will never reject you. Can I say it again? Jesus will never reject you. You know, sometimes I speak to people who have been rejected by their family, have been rejected by you know, friends, have been rejected by the church, have been rejected by Christians. And I understand the wounds are deep. I'm not denying that. But understand this. Jesus will never reject the person who genuinely seeks him. John 6, 37. Those the Father has given me will come to me, and I will never reject Your boss might have rejected you. Your mama might have rejected you. Your child may have rejected you. Your spouse may have rejected you. And I understand those are deep wounds. There's no denying that. But you will never be able to say, Jesus rejected me. Jesus understands better than anyone else the feeling of rejection. So, if you find yourself here this morning feeling that way tell him about it talk to him about it tell him what's on your heart um, he knows what rejection feels like he was rejected by his hometown his family his friends those who he invested his entire life into reject it and yet through all of that you see this human side of jesus where he constantly trusted god and i'm telling you here this morning you can trust God. You can build your life on Him. Because He will not reject you. See, He came to preach the good news. And today, my friend, it's the year of the Lord's favor. Don't waste one more day of your life until you surrender it to Jesus Christ and know what it feels like to be set free. Let's pray. Our Father, this morning we thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you for sending us, your Son, to rescue us. Lord, we were desperate without you. There was no way we could do this on our own. We needed someone to come, someone to deliver us, to rescue us, and you, and you did this amazing thing. You sent your son to proclaim the good news to the poor, to bring healing to the brokenhearted that the blind could see again, to set the prisoner free. And God, many of us have experienced that. The fact is, we'll never be the same again. But God, our prayer is that it's possible there could be someone here today who doesn't know that. And so God, we would pray fervently as the body, as the family here, for that individual, man or woman, boy or girl, Who's never surrendered their life, never really understood what it was to be set free from their sin. I pray, God, that today they would cry out to you, ask for your forgiveness of sin, invite you to be part of their life, and ask for a brand new start in Christ. This is our prayer this morning. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening, and consider joining us live on Sundays at 9, 15, and 11 a.m. For our address, directions, and any other information, find us online at templebaptist.com.